Welcome to Around These Islands in 12 Ports, brought to you by Chrome Radio in association with Yacht Nova and These Islands. I'm Katrina Oliphant. We're in the gardens of Trinity Square, on the north bank of the Thames, just across the road from the Tower of London. In front of me is the Tower Hill Memorial, which commemorates the men of the Merchant's Navy and fishing fleets who died at sea during the First and Second World Wars. Behind me rises the stately Georgian facade of Trinity House. Since 1796, this has been the headquarters of the Corporation of Trinity House. Established by Royal Charter in 1514, when Henry VIII was on the throne, Trinity House has been looking after the safety of mariners and the welfare of the seafaring community for over 500 years. We're going to meet Captain Roger Barker, Director of Navigation Requirements at Trinity House, to find out how the corporation safeguards mariners today. We are a lighthouse service, the General Lighthouse Authority for England, Wales, Channel Islands and Gibraltar. But we share those responsibilities for the whole of the UK with our colleagues in Ireland and Scotland. The Lighthouse Service delivers the UK Parliament's responsibilities to the SOLAS Convention. That's the Safety of Life at Sea Convention, which in brief requires the appropriate ace navigation according to volume of traffic and degree of risk. I'm a proud and passionate mariner. I went to sea just 16 and my dad cried on the platform in York when I left and joined my first ship down in Royal Albert Dock in London and we sailed for New Zealand three days later. Came back six months later drinking Guinness. I was by then a hairy sailor. Loved it. From those early beginnings as a cadet and my first qualifications under the standards for certification and watchkeeping and my second mate's ticket, I progressed through to be eventually master of several vessels. Having been master, I was asked to come ashore as marine superintendent, which meant I was captain ashore, looking after 18 ships at that time. The vessels I was finally working on for the United Baltic Corporation, part of the Andrew Weir family of companies, were roll-on, roll-off vessels, trading to all of the northern European ports, so Antwerp, Rotterdam, Amsterdam, Felixstowe, London, up to Finland and the Baltic waters. Through working on those vessels, I gained an awful lot of experience in high traffic volume areas, which I think fed into me the passion for using technology. And then a job came up at Trinity House, basically. One of the ways that I keep myself very up to speed with what is going on at sea is through the annual revalidation interviews that I carry out for the deep sea pilots that we license at Trinity House. The deep sea pilots assist vessels that may not be as familiar with the busy and constrained waterways of the Southern North Sea and Channel. We examine them, license them, and then revalidate them annually. That revalidation interview has been developed over the years, so I'm able now to spend less time looking at the certificates because I have the details online and up to date. I confirm that with the pilot within a few minutes, which enables me to spend the majority of the revalidation interview ensuring his competence. But as importantly, I listen to what's going on in the outside world. Some of the stories in inverted commas that come back from the deep sea pilots and vessels that they are looking after are at times quite frightening. Changing practices are emerging, reliant on technology. I really embrace technology. We can make it work for us, but it must be just one of the tools in the toolbox. Some of the interviews that I carry out with the deep sea pilots show me, together with the technology I use to examine tracks of vessels, that mariners 
do take themselves closer to danger than they used to do. So I have to ensure that at any time, if the GPS or um, other global navigation satellite system fails, the mariner will be able to look out of the window and when close to dangers, appraise itself of the position. For example, we deployed three or four years ago, two new boys off the Van Bank in the Dover Strait to help guide the mariners even further away from the bank because we'd found through examination of tracks that they were taking themselves closer and closer to the bank. The areas that we are responsible for, particularly in the southern North Sea and East Coast, are some of the most mobile areas of seabed in the world. For example, off Lowestoft, Southwold, Great Yarmouth, and moving further north into the Humber, shallow water, which is very mobile, The banks actually in some places are moving apace and we're actually um, having to move our boys sometimes twice or even three times a year to make sure we do mark the danger. To monitor mobility of the seabed, we carry out surveys in conjunction with the Civil Hydrographic Programme. This is a group of professional survey companies who carry out an ongoing process to survey the mobility of the seabed around the whole of our coast. The Civil Hydrographic Programme is run by the Maritime Coast Guard Agency, MCA, in conjunction with the United Kingdom Hydrographic Office, better known as the UKHO. There are times when the Civil Hydrographic Programme surveys are not often enough for my need to examine this mobile seabed. So we will actually survey ourselves with our own vessels with the high-tech equipment, including multi-beam, like the old-fashioned echo sounder, but it sends out the echo sounder transmissions in a pattern, so I get more of a picture of the seabed. And this helps me to determine how fast a bank is moving and if I need to change the position of the boys. We really do welcome the work we do with the ports. Last year, my colleague and I were down in the Bristol Channel, again looking at local survey information, met with the harbour master and his hydrographer and team, and indeed made some adjustments to Boyage as a result of that meeting and the examination of their surveys. Today, for example, I'm going to examine a survey which has been supplied to us by the Port of London Authority, the PLA. We're looking at the Barrow and Mouse Channel in the western end of the outer approaches. The seabed there is moving fairly quickly. The solution for AIDS navigation cannot be UK-centric. We've got to work with international partners to make sure that any solutions we deliver are common across the world. It would be no good a mariner having a a different type of voyage in Japan or Australia. So I work closely with IALA, the International Association of Marine Aids Navigation and Lighthouse Authorities. A few years ago now, we developed the emergency wreck marking buoy. There's a nice section in the Maritime Voyage System booklet, which I'm opening up now, which covers this blue and yellow buoy. It's a pillar buoy with blue and yellow vertical stripes with a yellow cross on the top and wreck will be written down the side of the boy in the yellow area. It also has a blue and yellow light alternating. If it's a serious danger to navigation, we will deploy up to four of these boys around the wreck and synchronize those lights. So it sends a very clear visual message, there's a danger here. And we will add to those boys if necessary, we'll add a raycon, which is a radar beacon. And we may also add to it the automatic identification system, AIDS navigation. Colleagues in China that I work with quite closely at Ayala are making real use of it, as indeed are we. All sorts of vessels may sink. Two years ago, we had a converted tug which sank in the approaches to Lowestoft. 
working closely with the Secretary of State's representative for oil pollution, that is the SOSREP. I determined the level of risk presented by this wreck and under a direction from the Secretary of State, which he is empowered to make under the Wreck Convention Act, we removed the wreck from the seabed. It had to go because the volume of traffic over that area in conjunction with the size of that vessel where it was laid on the seabed meant that the danger was too much to leave it in place. If another vessel hits the wreck, we end up with not just one wreck, but multiple wrecks on the seabed, the motorway pileup. Many of the other wrecks that we deal with will be fishing vessels. When a fishing vessel sinks, very often it will sink with its bow upwards. In other words, it's sat on its bottom on the seabed because the driest place on a fishing boat will be the forecastle store, the pocket of air. So if it's a 13 metre fishing vessel, I will determine that the danger could be 13 metres from the seabed, at least for a period of time. The last ship that I was captain of, the roll-off vessel, was about a 27 metre beam. If she laid on her side in the Southern North Sea, much of which is less than 30 metres in depth, the likelihood of somebody hitting it is very high. And that risk determines my assessment. The wreck of the Tricolor some years ago in the Dover Strait area, more than 100 vessels ran through the exclusion area surrounding the wreck of the Tricolor and four further vessels hit the wreck. My job is to ensure that vessels can transit our waters in safety and, as importantly, enter the multitude of deep water ports that we have around the coast. People forget that we are an island nation. 95% of UK goods come into the UK by sea. If we were to close off Felixstowe, the shelves in Tesco would go dry very quickly. One of the growing dangers is too much reliance on technology and without maintaining the skills to be able to use traditional methods of navigation. I worry a little bit that there is a growing gap between qualification and experience. I talked earlier about when I went to sea as a 16-year-old boy and learnt my trade right through to master. Although a certificate is essential and technical knowledge is absolutely essential, experience in using that knowledge is also essential. When we say, when did you learn to drive your car? Most people will say it's after you pass the driving test because that's when you get the experience. So we do have to be careful that we take due account of experience. Another area of concern is micromanagement from ashore. It's common now for ships to be able to make a passage plan electronically on the electronic chart display and information system, which will actually plot the course from A to B, from Sydney to London or Newcastle to Southampton. What's essential, of course, is that that passage plan is appraised. Was the chart up to date that the passage plan was prepared by? Had a new wind fan been built since the last time the charts were updated? Was there a met mast there? We have to make sure that the passage plan, and indeed the red line on the electronic chart display that the mariner is using to plot his passage, is accurate today. Deep sea pilots will often tell me during their revalidation interviews that ships are blindly following the red line and making inappropriate navigation decisions 
built on not wanting to go away from the red line. We now have examples where shipping companies are requiring notification before any substantial alteration from the pre-planned track. An alter course for a fishing vessel in previous times might have turned the ship a couple of miles away from the red line, safely because he's appraised the way and the depth of water that he's going into. Now, the reluctance to move away from the red line and that pre-planned track can get in the way of the best possible decision. We deploy a lot of lighthouses as well. At Trinity House, we have 66, providing the longer range and close in shop spatial awareness of the environment that the mariner is taking himself into. We're pretty proud in Trinity House that we are making maximum use of solar energy now. Almost all our lighthouses are powered by solar energy. We're one of the biggest users of solar panels in the UK and indeed Europe. So we're evolving. Although the lighthouses in many cases are the same buildings that were built in the 1800s or in some cases earlier, technology in the lighthouses is state of the art. All of the lighthouses are unmanned apart from when we're carrying out maintenance. So the rock stations, the traditional poles in the sea, Eddystone, Longships Lighthouse in the southwest approaches, for example, are now maintained by helicopters transiting out and landing on the top of the lighthouse, deploying the maintenance personnel. From our operations centre in Harwich, we can actually go right down to change the lamp in the lighthouse if one blows. But before the operations centre need to move, the bulb has been changed itself to make sure we do have the light burning as required. Many of our lighthouses now have two main light sources. So if main light one fails, we know that main light two is delivering exactly the same service to the mariner. It's important that we make a separation between the payment of the lighthouse service from light dues levied on ships calling into UK ports and the corporation of Trinity House, the charities. The ship owner pays nothing to the two major maritime charities that form the corporation of Trinity House. For example, the corporation fund the training of cadets, the deep sea pilot license system, they have arms houses and lots of other charitable activities. I mentioned cadets, my own cadetship, which I am a bit passionate about because it's where I got my experience. The Trinity House Cadet Scheme really is superb. The cadets get the opportunity to serve on a huge variety of vessels, from perhaps serving on our own boy tender vessels, which gain a lot of local knowledge, to a tanker, a passenger vessel, bulk carrier. So by the time they come out of the end of their apprenticeship, they have that experience which allows them to move into the wider maritime world. We are concerned in the UK and internationally that there are not the level and number of seamen coming through wishing to take up a career at sea and through many of our charitable activities and indeed other charities that work with and organisations we're pushing to address the so-called sea blindness. As an island nation and 95% of goods coming by sea we must ensure that we're able to man our vessels with the right skilled people for the future. I'm proud that my son came into the marine community through a local harbour authority, but the reason he actually got into the sea and maritime as a whole was as a member of Sea Scouts. The Sea Scouts and the Sea Cadets are another inroad into youngsters who might have an idea of following a seagoing career. They learn about it as boys in beavers and cubs and the likes, which is another area that we support through the Corporation of Trinity House. Many of the Trinity House cadets are female now. In fact, week before last, I was out doing a viewing trial of Beachy Head Lighthouse. We put a new light on there and we go to check it. And the two young cadets, first trip cadets, were both females. They were great. They were really enthusiastic. In my own career, the first lady I sailed with at sea was a radio officer, Heather. Heather the weather.
because one of the traditional jobs of the radio officer was to pick up the radio weather reports. And she was great. I don't think there is any difference at all between a female or a male seaman. We're all in the same industry. And I look forward to the day when executives of major shipping companies and organisations will be females. But to me, gender isn't the issue, it's the skills. And it's really important that we encourage people to understand what is available in careers at sea. In 2017, we held a conference here in Trinity House, London, entitled Inspiring Future Mariners trying to encourage people to look at the possibilities of a seagoing career, a marine career. Why I decided to go to sea was through background up on the northeast coast, fishing on cobbles. I had the sea in my blood. But people from central UK, Birmingham, might not know about the sea. It's a really good career, an exciting career. It's wonderful. As a cadet, you really trust the officer that you're on watch with, the third mate and the second mate and so forth. There was one occasion we were at sea and I'd been complaining to the second mate that the kettle was broken, it was useless. And he said to me, yeah, I know, Roger, go and throw it over the side. So without a bow or leave, I'm out to the bridge, we're going to throw the kettle over the side. And he said, no, 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 I didn't mean it. But there it was, gone. So the following lunchtime, the chief engineer called me and he said, I need to interview you, Roger. What's this about the kettle? I said, well, well I, I threw it, sir, because he told me to throw it. They kidded me on for a long time. They said, that ship's pretty close in here, Roger. How many kettle throws is that away? And so uh, trust and comradeship aboard the vessel is amazing. That was Captain Roger Barker, Director of Navigation Requirements at Trinity House. If you'd like to know more about the work of Trinity House, do look at the web links in the information about this podcast. I hope you'll join me next time when we visit the first of our 12 ports, Southampton. You've been listening to Around These Islands in 12 Ports, brought to you by Chrome Radio in association with Yacht Nova and These Islands.